You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Some of you are going to know the name Jack Dorsey. I, w- I wouldn't have known it myself uh, until a recent radio interview. But um, Jack Dorsey is the founder of Twitter. And according to the so-called creation myth, the social networking, microblogging company was founded by one guy with a great idea about connecting. But if you dig below the surface and actually learn about the history and the origin of Twitter, you find not so much, not Jack, though he was there, it was really friendship that began Twitter, or the longing, the hunger for friendship that's at the genesis of that company. Nick Bilton recently has written a a history of Twitter, and he describes how it began. It was a dark night at San Francisco. In a parked car behind the windshield, you could see Noah Glass and, and Jack Dorsey two friends. They had been dancing all night, drinking all night. It was very, very late. Actually, early hours of the morning, it was raining. And they were not feeling so good, not only because of the night, but their lives were tough, personally and professionally. As they sat there, it was Noah who broke the silence, and he turned over to Jack, and he said, hey, this would be amazing if we could build a technology that would make us feel less alone. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could build a technology that would make us feel less alone? You and I have a need to connect. You were made for relationship. The first thing the Bible says is not wrong, right, about creation is it's not good for the man to be alone. And you know what? Social scientists continue to gather more research that shows that's the case. For example... The Atlantic Magazine recently published an article by Emily Estahani-Smith called Social Connection Makes a Better Brain. And she gathers uh, from different disciplines some of this data and interpretation. Anthropologists tell us that the human brain is disproportionately large, some of ours, compared to our body uh, for social connection. That's the reason. Neuroscientists tell us that the brain's default network That is what happens when you stop thinking about anything. It relapses to a a, a setting for social interaction. It's optimized. Our brains are optimized for social interaction. Psychologists tell us that social pain registers every bit as acutely as physical pain. And economists, this is interesting. You might make a little money here today. Seeing your neighbors on a regular basis increases your happiness uh, commensurate with a raise in pay of $60,000 a year. That's not bad. Working's overrated. If you just see your neighborhood on a regular basis, you'll feel as happy as if you made $60,000. If you have a friend, moreover, that you see on most days, the bump in happiness is the same as a bump in happiness of $100,000. Uh, per year. Just having a friend that you see on most days. Uh, the opposite is true as well. When we lose connection with people, uh, it's like taking a financial hit. A divorce, for example, we're told is equal to a $90,000 annual loss in happiness. Okay, we know. 
It's painful. It's because we're meant to bond, to connect. We're not supposed to feel lonely. And so there's this question out there. Uh, wouldn't it be amazing if we could build a technology that would make us feel left alone? And now we have Twitter. But, you know, if you look at the story, that was back in 2006, that rainy night. Seven years later, the IPO, uh, November 7th, Noah Glass, this is the guy who said that in the car, and the guy who invented the name Twitter, will not be listed among the billionaires minted on that day because Noah Glass was pushed out. Jack uh, uh, Dorsey uh, will make a, a billion dollars, but uh, he's been fired from the company you know, many years since. So the point is that isn't it ironic that the need for, uh, for a technology that mitigates our loneliness did not, although there are millions of users worldwide, the nucleus couldn't hold. These relationships at the core were, could not be sustained. And so what would do it? I mean, what would allow real connection if not technology? Well, I, I think the answer is Jesus. And I think you're here perhaps because Jesus knows he is the answer, and he wants you to experience that. God in Jesus Christ has reconciled us to himself. That's the vertical dimension. But God in Jesus Christ is also reconciling us to one another. We're alive in Christ, but we're also alive together. And that's the invitation these next eight weeks. Well, think about that. I want to challenge you, as I, as I myself have been challenged, because I am fundamentally an introvert I'm an individual. I love my freedom and my autonomy, and I don't want to be bothered by you. But you know what? I'm repenting, and God in his grace is converting me. And I have a message for you that comes out of his word, and we're going to look at this in two different ways. First of all, we're going to look at the five purposes of what we here at UPC call life-changing community. And here's what they are really quick. I'll just give them to you right up front, and you can write them down if you want, but I'm going to give them to you every week. Uh, study the word, worship the Lord, care for each other, Love our neighbors, relate as friends. Those are the five purposes of life-changing community. We're going to look at one of those each week. We're also going to look at the one another passages of the New Testament because the interesting thing is the New Testament has a word for connection that's deeper than anything we have. It's a pronoun, and it's one another. And we're, going to, we're going to talk about that in, in, a, in a minute. So, but before we do, let's look at the first passage, the first one another text that we're going to look at today, and it's found in John, 1 John, the letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. And so if you're looking at that black book in front of you, the Pew Bible, just pull that out and open up to page 991, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Uh, let's read God's Word alive together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Love one another. Love one another. Let us love one another. 
So there's that little phrase, one another. Do you know it happens a hundred times in the New Testament, one another? And it's a translation of a Greek word, alelon. That's the Greek word, alelon. Now, I was talking with a group of people on Wednesday about that, and they go, wait, can you pronounce that again? Because it sounds like you're saying all alone, <laughs> which is just the opposite of what it means. One another. When you're alle alone, the Greek word, the one thing you cannot be is all alone, the English phrase. You have to have somebody else to be one anothered. In the New Testament, it's paired up with a verb, and the action of the verb is always something one person can't do to the other. So one another is what we call a reciprocal pronoun. It works two ways. It's always reciprocating. It's always pushing the action of the verb this way and that way. It's always mutual. You can't do it alone. You need to have at least one other person. Ideally, you have a community of people who engage in the action of these verbs together for one another. And the welfare of the whole increases. It's not me for you or you for me. It's us together. And God does something mysterious as he reconciles us in Jesus Christ. This is his distinct way of making us alive together. And what I've picked up as I read the Bible is that you can think you know what the Christian life is all about, but Jesus always has an agenda. And his agenda is the one that matters. He has an agenda for me and his agenda for you. And it's not that we become better people, by the way. It's that we become his people. That's primary. That we become his people. And the phrase that the Bible uses again and again for that, particularly the Apostle Paul, is the body of Christ. So I want you to see how the phrase body of Christ gets linked to this reciprocal pronoun, one another. And we look at, at Romans chapter 12, verse 5, where we read, so we who are many, that's, that's describing us as individuals, now are one body in Christ, that's describing us as a unity, body of Christ, and individually we are members of one another. And there it is, all alone. We're members of one another. So I don't know, suppose you take JJ up on his invitation. By the way, isn't JJ the best guy in the history of Christianity with announcements? I just think he does a great job. He's got performance eyebrows, we say. Anyways, where was I? Uh, so JJ said, Lent is coming. That's the six weeks before Easter, and there's going to be an invitation for those of us who are not in small groups to kind of step over the threshold and go, okay, I'll do it. So I don't know, you know what your small group will look like, but you'll walk through a strange room into a strange apartment or coffee shop or something. There'll be a circle of people. There's usually some guacamole dip involved or donuts or something. And everybody will bring a different agenda for the meeting, but Jesus is going to bring his agenda for the meeting. And you know what it is? It's to make you into a people. It's to make you into a community that experiences life together as one another's. Love one another. And it's going to be hard to believe. But he wants to take his written word. So you, you know, oftentimes we call our small groups Bible studies. I never do because there's so much more than that. The Bible is important. We're going to look at God's written word together, but we're going to realize that when we do that, Jesus uses through the Holy Spirit the written word to, to introduce himself to us. We will encounter the living word, Jesus Christ. And as we encounter him, we find out we are going to become his body, the body of Christ. The word wants to become flesh in you. And that's, that's really my point this morning. If you take anything home, take that home. The word wants to become, is obsessed about becoming flesh 
in you. So what we're talking about today is January 12th is the implication of what we experienced a few weeks ago on January 25th. We celebrated the incarnation, and it's this amazing thing that God, the creator, would become a part of the creation, even a baby, even in poverty in the Middle East, in the hay of a manger. And it's hard to believe. But you know what's even harder to believe? That these people right here, that us, taken corporately, corporately, in the flesh, are the body of Christ. Theologians call it the spiritual body of Christ. Now, that's hard to swallow. C.S. Lewis wrestles with this a little bit. If you ever read the screw tape letters, kind of a fun passage, and there he, he goes, just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a devil talking to another devil in training, and it's, it's about how you, know, you can keep people away from Jesus. And one of our great tools, the devil says, is the church. It's always so helpful when you're trying to keep people away from Jesus to expose them to the church, right? And then there's this expression about this one guy, who's got, he's, a, he's a grocer with an oily expression on his face, and you want the patient to sit next to that grocer. And here's what uh, Screwtape writes. When uh, he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. If they sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, he will quite easily believe that their religion must somehow be ridiculous. Come on, this can't be the body of Christ. We would expect so much more of Jesus than this, right? And when you just look around for a second, I know those of us from Northern European cultures don't like to make eye contact with other people, especially when we're trapped in a pew. But, you know, just if you dare, just, just look at the person next to you. See who's there. They might have brought you. They might be a total stranger or maybe both. This could be an opportunity for you. But just see who's sitting right there. Now, some of you didn't even move your, your eyes. I know. And I, and I, and I get it. Um, so I'm not going to ask you to say anything. If Alan Belton were here, you know, um, and I'm going to introduce Alan Belton to you next week if you don't know who he is. He would ask you to say this out loud to your neighbor. I'm too shy to force you to do that. But I want you to think these two thoughts. I want you to remember that person you just looked at, and I want you to, I want you to think about this. Christ in you is the hope of glory for me. Think about that. The person you're sitting next to, whether their face is oily or not, the truth, Christ in you is the hope of glory for me. Now, here's the really hard part. I want you to flip it around, and I want you to remember that face. And I want you to say to yourself, Christ in me, Christ in me is the hope of glory for you. I want to tell you that's almost impossible for me to believe. You know why? Because I know me. Because I know my past. I know my limitations. I know my absolute brokenness and rebellious heart. And I can't even begin to believe that Christ in me, that Christ is alive in me, and that he's your hope. But that's what the Bible teaches. I mean, look, that's what John is teaching here. Notice this. He says, no one has ever seen God. If you have the Bible open there still, it's verse 12. It's the end of the paragraph. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. That's Christ in you. 
And yeah, the world hasn't seen you. By the way, he's echoing his first uh, work, the um, Gospel of John, which says the same exact things, chapter one. No one has ever seen God, but in the beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And now he's going back, you know, uh, some number of years later and he's saying, no one's still seen God, but look, I want to invite you into the program here because you're not getting it. Apparently some group are splitting off from this group of Christians in in Asia Minor. This this is the end of the first century, most likely in AD 90 or thereabouts. And if you look at chapter two, you'll see some have departed. Community is breaking down because people are beginning to see themselves as individuals. And he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, minute. you got to love one another. you got to love one another. you got to do it together. And when you do, the people who have not seen God will get it because God is love. That's his word. He's told us that. But the word keeps wanting to become flesh. The word keeps wanting to make his love visible for you and in you and among you and for the world. See, that's, that's, that's who you are. You may not see yourself that way, but that's who you are. You know, we said in the Apostles' Creed just a moment ago, it's an article of faith. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who makes this happen. No one but the Holy Spirit can make this happen. So we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the church. The whole Catholic means universal, the holy Catholic, the universal church. I believe in the forgiveness of sins because there's no body of Christ without the forgiveness of sins. And I believe the communion of saints, that's the oneness, the radical oneness that God has given us in Jesus Christ. You said you believe it. The word becomes flesh in you. Love one another. How do we do it? How? I wasn't here last week. I was worshiping in another church and they made us sing a song that said, love is easy. And I just want to go, no, it's not. (laughs) You don't know me. You don't know my people. Um, It's not easy. Let's be honest. Even in the church, it's not easy. Church has been toxic for many of us. We've not looked like the body of Christ. So how do we do it? Two things, two ways I want to share with you just this morning. First, you got to receive love. And second, you got to share it. First, receive love. I mean, you can't give what you don't have. And so we got to receive love. And where do we get love? Well, we haven't seen God, but we have his word, his written word that points us to the living word. And so we, we, we got to, we got to study the word. You got to be in the scripture. It's not Christian community if it doesn't begin with God's revelation. Everything is a response to his love. And so, you know, that's what John's doing. He's like, let me write you a letter. Let me put it into words. Let me send it to you. And he's saying, look, look, it's just all about God. It loves you. Love is from God. God is love. God sent his only son into the world. He loves you before you love him. All of that. It's all in that paragraph there. And that's what you find when you read the Bible, any part of it and all of it together. It's that God loves you. And you, you need, just need to know that. I mean, you've heard that, but you need to know that. You see the difference? Haddon Robinson used to tell a story about a young man who lived in Chicago. He's a businessman, and one day he was smitten with love for a woman who lived in Kentucky. And so he went down to the bluegrass state for some period of time to court this um, object of his affection, and uh, she would return to him sometime later as his bride back in Chicago. They lived together for three years. 
of happy marriage, and then one day she got sick, and she had a seizure, and out of that seizure, she was struck by mental illness, real tragedy. At her best, she was delirious. At her worst, she was racked with pain and screaming so bad that the neighbors complained and had to move out into one of the western suburbs. He built the house, a little bit of space, hoping to nurse her back in this safe place, but she stayed sick. One day, her physician said to him, maybe if you were to take her back home to Kentucky, those familiar, you know, surroundings would stimulate something and kind of bring her back. And so he did. They drove to Kentucky, and uh, they held hands, and he walked her through the old homestead, her family house, and room by room, pungent with memories. And and then outside, and walked across the fields, the cowslips were in bloom, and along the river and heard the sounds of the stream. and Nothing was able to sort of wake her up. So he was discouraged, he got back in the car and drove home, and you know, the long drive back to Chicago, she fell asleep. And it was a deep sleep. It was, it was deeper than he had seen her sleep in weeks, and so he just, le- he just left her. In fact, she continued to sleep when the car was turned off in their driveway, and he lifted her gently uh, into the house and laid her under the covers and, and then sat there, discouraged, a vigil, watching as she drew these deep breaths and through the night and midnight and then the, the first rays of dawn began to come and color the curtains and warm the room and at some point her eyes opened and they were clear and she looked at him and she spoke and she said, I seem to have been on a long, long journey. Where have you been? And he smiled, and he looked in her eyes, realizing she was back. And he said, my sweetheart, I have been here, right here, waiting for you the whole time. Now, I know you've never seen God, and you don't see him today. But if you were to ask, where is God? I believe he would have the same answer for you. I don't don't care who you are or what you've done or where you are, but I, I want you to know I'm sitting right here on the bed beside you. I've gone through it all with you and for you, and I'm waiting so lovingly, so patiently for you just to wake up and know how much I love you. And, 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 and that's what happens when we read his word. He sits with us. And he sends his Holy Spirit to bring it to life and open our eyes and to try to convince us of his love. So we have to receive love through his word. The second thing we need to do is to share love with one another. That is, flesh and blood people, not ideal people that we'd like to be able to share our love with, but real people. And here's why I say it that way, because there's something going on behind this letter that most scholars uh, sense. We don't really know why John wrote his letter, but we put the pieces together, and, and it seems that he is writing to a community who is suffering from cultural pressures that are stripping away the power of the body of Christ. There are two things in that area. There's a Hellenistic region, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that were very current. They had two values. One was knowledge, and the other was the ideal. And they had this idea that um, 
that the secret to life was to gain information, particular knowledge uh, that would allow you to be enlightened. And they had this notion that the stuff that really mattered wasn't the physical stuff, but it was the ideal stuff. And, um, and so Jesus could never have actually really been incarnate. Jesus wasn't really in the flesh. He just kind of looked like it. He approximated it. He was like an avatar. He was a virtual Jesus. I want to tell you, if you have a virtual Jesus, you're going to end up with a virtual church. And so John writes to contradict their notion, their idea of who Jesus is and who we are. And I want to ask you the question because I just wonder today whether in America we haven't got more of a virtual church than a real church. I wonder if we don't think about our faith in terms of knowledge of, well, just kind of getting the secret in, you know, as soon as you get the right doctrines or whatever, you got it. I wonder if we don't think about the people in the pew as, as not really real followers of Jesus because, look, they're not ideal. And so we put together our playlists of pastors and preachers, and we go for different experiences in different congregations, and we put together our experience of what we think church should be, but we're never actually embedded in a body, committed to people and allowing them to commit to us. We're not really living one another. But I want to tell you what, this is not the definition of the church that John gives his readers. John gives his definition of the church in a single word, the beginning, the first word of verse 7, and it's this, beloved. See, he doesn't say informed. He doesn't say ideal people. He says beloved people. And with that one word, he gives us the only mark of the church that we really need, and that is that we are loved by God. Whatever else we might be, the most important thing is we're beloved. That's the church. Real people, fallen people, broken people, doubting people, but beloved people. And once we receive his love, then we have love to share with one another. And Alan Belton says, loved people love people. I hope you get to hear him say that next week. Loved people will love people. You can't love unless you've been loved, but once you are loved by God, you will have his love. See, John says, love is from God. It's from God. So who are your people? Who are you one anothering with? You should Names should come to your mind. And by the way, I should be able to cross-check your list with their list. You see the important? If, if, if they don't name you, then you're not one anothering. You might be loving them, but you're not loving one another. See, your list has to match their list. And that's what happens in a small group is we say, let's be intentional together to live in community for six weeks or, or for 60 years. It doesn't, but let's be intentional so that my list matches your list and we will love one another together. So, you know, take away, if you're not in a small group, you need to get in a small group. Okay, you're going to hear that for eight weeks. Uh, and um, if you are, here are two questions for you to take home to that group this week. First of all, ask yourselves, how does God's word become flesh in our little circle of friends? How does God's word become flesh in us? And then secondly, ask how, what are the ways that we love one another? When an interviewer asked Nick Bilton what surprised him about the inception of Twitter, he said it was finding out that it really wasn't just one guy, Jack Dorsey. It wasn't. He said, actually, when the company really lifted off the ground, 
there, were, there was a brainstorm session that they held in a conference room, and there were 12 people in the room. I'm thinking to myself, well, that's really not a surprise. 12 people in a room. Those of us who know the story of how Jesus brings real connection in people's lives. Won't be surprised about that one bit. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you're a leader. You are the one who has come to embody it love and to call us to embody it through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you. Um, but love is hard. And so we're either afraid or not paying attention. And we pray today that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit simply by faith, that we might embody your love, that we might be the hands, the feet, the heart, the eyes of Jesus Christ for the people around us in that community today. Empower us for that. Give us courage. Steal us against the fear. And then help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.